The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. You can see what is really real. That's what Apocalypse really uh, is about. It's, it's uh, discovering that the great Wizard of Oz really is an old man cranking a bunch of machinery uh, behind a curtain that, and he doesn't want you to see who he is. Apocalypse for us uh, and Revelation is a book that is often confusing, but it is a book that is fundamentally uh, one that we need to wrestle back both from popular culture, but even uh, more than that, we need to wrestle it back uh, from a place where it is simply intimidating or scary or we feel like it's full, um, uh, simply bad news. That's something really important to say to us. Um, in particular tonight, all of us are asked a question of who can stand. At some point, we're trying to figure out how do we make our way in life? How, how do we not just sort of stand, but how do we, how, what are the things that we do so that we can stand firm, so that uh, we can make our way as we move through life? We all bring in pressures of one kind or another, and we're trying to figure out how do we navigate those pressures? How do we navigate the things that, that come in on us that sometimes feel vague, sometimes it just is a, a sense of... Um, Something feels like you're, you're kind of, you're walking through mud. You're walking through, um, sort of a, a sense. It feels like you have, uh, bricks, cement bricks on your feet. Sometimes it feels like you're going upstream. And sometimes it's real clear what it is that we're contending with, what it is that is, that is before us, a challenge, a decision, a, a difficult workplace, difficult set of relationships. Well, John fundamentally, the apostle John, that is, um, as he presents to us this revelation, this vision that he gets from Jesus, is really a pastor, uh, first and foremost, and he is concerned that these churches that he knows so well, that they would be able to remain faithful, that they would be able to go uh, live out this call that God has on them with every, absolutely everything they have in a way that doesn't settle kind of in, doesn't give up, doesn't feel sort of dominated and beat down, but actually kind of runs Full at life. That actually remains faithful in the midst of this. And so he, he presents us this strange book. And we've talked about apocalypse as a genre. Helps us to understand what's going on with these images. He talks to us, first of all, he showed us in first one, there's this, or chapter one, there's this incredible vision of Jesus. In which, in which this incredible, scary vision, on, uh, in a lot of ways, reaches out and says, John, do not be afraid. He continues on because he wants us to get clear. On, on who is at the very beginning of this, because it's, it's gonna get weird. He's gonna focus our attention on who Jesus is in a fresh way. He moves in, he says, look, Jesus knows everything about you. You're known for all the awesome things you do and for all the junk. And you go through and we see in the seven churches that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through, the difficulty that you, that you're facing, and the compromise and the ways that you're, uh, perhaps not going for it. He knows the ways in which he goes, look, I see this, and I'm going to give you a thumbs up. But I also see the other side, and I'm going to call you to something better than what you're doing now. Move on in chapters 4 and 5, we see this incredible vision in the throne room. And really what he wants us to see is that, that God truly is, and especially in Jesus Christ, is worthy of our trust. Anything that's worthy of really putting our full weight down as we think about navigating our way through this life what is it that's worthy of putting our faith or our trust in? Well, it's got to hold two things. It's got to hold both the goodness of creation as well as that we live in a broken world. 
And so we get this incredible vision at, sort of at the center of the universe. And we see that the one who is actually able to deal with all that breaks our hearts sounds like a roaring lion that comes in. But when we turn around, we see that it's actually a lamb. It's scandalous. And yet it is exactly the thing that actually can contend with the brokenness that you face, that I face, that our world faces, that our friends face. One that actually can deal with it without destroying us and destroying the ones we love. Well, now John, um, uh, the Apostle John moves out and he says, look, I want you now to, I want you to understand, um, uh, I want to start making sense of human history because in a lot of ways it, it's, it's the lamb at the center that, uh, that unpacks the scroll and the scroll is really our experience. We talked about that. It's all history and it's our experience and he begins to, to crack the seals. And when we really begin to look at life, when we really begin to, to sort of get into it and not just kind of, not just give it lip service, we know that it is ugly at times, that it is scary at times, that, it, that in many ways it frightens us, in many ways we'd rather turn our eyes away. And so uh, we began to get into that. Uh, and Ron began to unpack that uh, for us uh, last week because this is probably where most people start checking out on the book of Revelation and yet there is something so, so important in there that we often miss. So Ron, I want to invite you to come up and uh, Ron is uh, teaching this series with me, professor of biblical studies, New Testament biblical studies at Northwest University. And um, Ron, I'm just, could, would you just, we kind of jumped in, you, you unpacked a lot of this language that helps us to start to get our heads around it. Would you just uh, uh, review that for us a little bit and then, and then kind of, I know there are some things we didn't have time to as we think about, uh, it, it gets more, after the four horsemen, it actually gets more and more frightening. So what's going on? Yeah. Um, well, good evening, everyone. Great to be back. Um, what we did last week was just really unload a lot of information. And, uh, and one of the things that is hard to appreciate about John's apocalypse is that he actually wrote with the end in mind when he began. And there is sort of a coherent narrative thread. Anyone here who's a writer and, or done that kind of work, you know that having a sense of where you're headed can be very important in terms of hanging things on the line from beginning to end. And one of the things that I want us to just be aware of is that John's not just lashing out as a grumpy old man. You know, we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, he certainly does see things, and he depicts them really, really uh, you know, starkly in terms of these four horsemen. But the four horsemen that we talked about last week are part of a set of seven. There are seven seals. And I'm actually just going to, if we've got markers, yeah. um, actually, are those them there? Yeah. All right. There we go. Um, what I want you to be able to do is just kind of get a sense of where the book of Revelation is going to go. And then what I want to do is read a couple of passages, very uh, short passages from Revelation. We've got seven seals. And uh, then a little later in the book, we've got seven trumpets. All right. And then a little later in the book, and there's a reason that I'm sort of doing this here. Then we've got seven bowls. All right. The first thing I want you to see is that every time the author of the apocalypse gets to the end of one of these seals or trumpets or bowls, every time he gets to the seventh element in the cycle, he says something very interesting. 
And I'm going to read three verses or three sections from each of the end of these, and that will help us, I think, to begin to get a sense of what's going on. First of all, in uh, chapter 8, verse 5, this is the end of the seventh seal, first cycle. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were, now listen to this, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right? Thunder, rumbling, lightning, and an earthquake. All right? And that's the end of the seven seals. In chapter 11, verse 19, at the end of the seven trumpets, and we're skipping, but I want you to see a pattern. At the end of that, it says the ark of God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of, sorry, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, right? So far, everything sounds the same. And he adds one thing, and heavy hail, all right? So you have these meteorological descriptions at the end of the seven seals, and I'm actually going to call that, for the sake of brevity, I'll just abbreviate, the end formula, all right? You got this thunder, lightning, flashes, earthquake, that kind of thing. At the end of the trumpets, you have the same thing, an end formula. It's these different features. Now, if we go to the end of the seven uh, bowls, what do you think you're going to find there? Let me... Uh, Read this for you here. Then the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, violent earthquake, such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. All right. One more time. There's this formula that seems to signal something's going on. Now, does anybody remember when I talked about the earthquake in the seven seals last Tuesday night? What did I suggest that that was on about? Does anybody remember? Yeah, it's God's voice, and it reminds us of what? Where else was there an earthquake and lightning and thunder and God speaking? Sinai, exactly right. So what, what John has done is he's taken this motif of Yahweh speaking and giving his judgment on Sinai, which produced Israel's law and covenant with Yahweh. And he's taking that same idea and saying, someday when Yahweh sets everything right, when Yahweh speaks finally and fully, which by the way, whether we realize it or not, every human heart really longs for that. And John chooses a common Old Testament picture, Yahweh on Sinai, and says, someday, at the end of the seals, at the end of the trumpets, at the end of the bowls, Yahweh will speak finally and fully. And the earthquake is the signal of Yahweh's judging presence. When he speaks, things are radically different, right? So what I want you to see is that the book of Revelation, how many, if you've ever heard Revelation talked about, how many of you have heard it? as sort of a timeline that tells you everything that's going to happen in the future and things keep getting worse, right? It's not that way at all. In fact, when John tells you that the end has come and Yahweh has spoken, the narrative is finished. At the end of the seven seals, Yahweh's judgment has come. But then John starts the story over and he intensifies it and he tells it from a different angle. 
and he comes to the end again. In fact, the book of Revelation is not a linear book where you can read and come to the end of history. The book of Revelation actually has these repeating cycles that intensify or, I mean, we have a lot of musicians and a lot of artists in the room. You'll be familiar with the way a symphony or different musical pieces work that have more than one movement where there's a dominant theme or a motif that keeps coming back and yet every movement of the piece is somewhat different. And that's what John is doing. So if that's what he's doing, I'm going to grab a different color and... Uh, Say, what is he doing in the seven seals? Well, John's already uh, talked about that in review of last week. I got to break in right here because right. this is—I got told this is confusing. Which we got to just stop it right now. The, the, the apostle John and then me as John. So oh, okay. maybe we'll call it the apostle. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't have Sounds the vision. Good. You didn't have the no, vision. No, no, that's right. No, this John reminded us yeah. that John the seer, right? Uh, tells us that the scroll is basically human experience, human history. That's the angle for the seven seals. He's unpacking this human experience, which raises all these questions for us, and we want to respond to that. In the next section of the apocalypse, you have a much more demonic or cosmic perspective. In other words, there, the author of Revelation wants you to see that it's not just about human beings making poor choices and it's not just about people being bad when they should be good. There's actually something really rotten and wrong with the world in which we live. Creation that was good is fallen and God's saving, restoring judgment and justice has to come into that context as well. And then finally, the seven bulls tell us the same story one more time. And this time, John emphasizes the universal scope of God's judgment. And he tells us things like, you know, the earthquake was bigger than has ever been in human history. It tells us that, you know, nothing escapes John's, uh, God's judgment. It's saying all those things, here's what's interesting. Several of you already shouted out and said, God speaking and pronouncing his justice and his judgment is reminiscent of Sinai. Does anybody else know what these different seals and trumpets and bowls sound like from a very similar part of the Old Testament? If I were to use the word from Exodus, what do these things sound like when bad things seem to be happening in the world? Yeah, exactly right. So first... You understand what John, here's what John is doing. This is apocalyptic brilliance, all right? He's taking his own world and he's telling the story of what's going on. He's pulling the curtain back, but he's using narrative elements of Israel's history and saying, this is the Yahweh from Sinai who speaks definitively. And when that happens, human evil demonic or cosmic evil, uh, the universal brokenness of creation and that kind of thing, that's all the story is told in the language of the plagues, which reminds us of why were there plagues in the first place, right? Was God just ticked off one particular decade? What, I mean, what are the plagues in response to? The hardening of human hearts, in particular, Pharaoh's heart. So I don't know if this is going to help. And this is kind of where I want to stop it, because we could do a whole 45 minutes on this. But I just want to say, 
If you read the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls as a repeating movement, think of it almost as a symphony where you're going from one movement to the other, telling a similar story. The theme is the same, but the angle or the lens has changed. You can still hear the similarities, but there's also an intensifying message. And if we think of it in terms of Sinai, plagues, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that's what John says is going on in the first century in the Roman Empire. Understand, John thinks of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's thinking of Yahweh's voice on Sinai. And John thinks of the ravages of Roman excess and luxury when he thinks of the plagues. And John thinks of none other than the emperor himself when he thinks of, or he thinks of Pharaoh when he thinks of the emperor. So when we come back in a later session and we start to talk about the beast from the sea and the number 666, we're going to get more into that. All I wanted to do here was give you guys a sense that the narrative kind of makes sense when you see that John is telling the same story from different angles. And the, the discussion of the four horsemen was just as we did last week. We were talking about human evil and perpetration of evil and how do we respond to that in our world, which is, I think, where we want to kind of take off more practically today. Ren, you talked a little bit about uh, the four horsemen. Can, can you summarize those for us? What are we seeing in the, as we kind of work through yeah. those three? Just well, remind. you remember when the first uh, seal is open and the horseman rides out, we have this, uh, this language of conquest. Remember I talked about Nikao and Nike, the Nike brand and this overcoming, and we suggested that the first horseman reflects the human tendency to power and manipulation and control of our environment. Right Now, it's not that leadership is bad, but this is human leadership gone amok. This is power manipulation. The second horseman rides out, and what do we have? We have war and the taking of a way of peace. The third horseman rides out, and what do we have? We have economic injustice and people charging astronomical prices for everyday goods that people buy and sell and need basically to stay alive in the ancient world. And the fourth horseman rolls out, and, uh, and now you've got famine and disease and sickness and that kind of thing. And I think John, see, that's the thing. The book of Revelation isn't esoteric. It's not ethereal. It's not way out there. It's actually John taking everyday things in his own world and telling them in a really creative way, much like we might talk to an artist, yeah. like we're going to do tonight, and yeah. say, what do, you, what do we see here? And there'll be real things in life, but depicted in a way that helps us to see them again for the first time. That's good. Thanks. Yeah, I think I think what is difficult um, is that we do see this language, and it and it's uh, it's violent, and it's scary, and it's um, it's not the kind of thing we we like to look at. Um, yeah, this is a you pulled this from uh, newspaper. It's the kind of thing that we don't necessarily. Um, Sometimes in the church, what we like to do is we like to put up uh, paintings. I think about this when we talk about what's going on in the world. These kind of glossy, sort of like fuzzy pastel, like cottages when we want to talk about what God is dealing with and what God does. And I just think, how, how does that deal with my reality? My reality doesn't look like a nice little cottage with a stream going by. My reality can look, feel like sometimes that's more like this, where it feels like that there are forces that just feel like they're ravaging through my life and the lives of those that, that I love. The question, though, is, is what do we do with it? On, that on one hand, 
we think, do we really need to get into uh, images that are this uh, graphic in many ways? I, I was, uh, an article caught my attention out of uh, Christianity Today. It came right out of um, uh, when Reflections on 9-11. And there's this, this author is debating, uh, or kind of weighing in on this debate about, should we keep showing the images of the towers going down? Or do we just need to kind of move on? And there's this kind of back and forth on like, if we keep showing those images, it just makes us angry and we do bad things. So let's, let's get rid of that. And on the other hand, there's a sense of like, let's never forget. Um, he, he weighs in on this that I think might help us as we think about contending with some uh, of the things that we see. He says, does denying unpleasant realities really protect us from emotional trauma? And he's responding to the sense of just, we need to not see things that bother us. Perhaps not. A generation ago, psychologist Bruno Bettelheim warned that our kinder, gentler children's stories weren't really an advance over the often dark, violent fairy tales of ages past. The children don't have nightmares because of the stories, he suggested. Rather, we tell dark fairy tales because of children's nightmares. That's because children know at a primal, intuitive level that there's something wild out there. Stories can help... us. can help children make sense of the chaotic world and their often chaotic selves. When we merely present good role models or happy youngsters in, a safe, in safe places making wise choices, our children will soon wonder whether we are telling the truth or, whether they, uh, or they will come to see themselves as freakishly fearful. I think it, it, for me, as I, I'm hearing that, what, what I think is helpful for us is to think we don't want to sit in a in a kind of despair. We don't want to sit in a place where we are looking around and just saying everything is falling apart. And yet, most of us want God, the gospel, want God to be able to speak into the, the difficult stuff of our lives. And simply sanitizing things doesn't help us. But then the question is, so what do we do about it? He goes on to say, later, uh, later on in the article this, he says, the softening of apocalyptic language hasn't uh, led to more pe- a more peaceful church. Just listen to talk, Christian talk radio or attend a faith and values rally, and you'll hear plenty of warfare speech. Unlike the past, however, such language is directed primarily at people perceived to be cultural and political enemies. If we're too afraid of seeming Pentecostal to talk about the devil, we'll find ourselves declaring war on mere concepts like evil or sin. When there's no demons, we demonize. And without a clear vision of the concrete forces that we, have the ch- we as a church are supposed to be aligned against, we find it very difficult to differentiate differentiate between enemy combatants and their hostages. He finishes the section by saying, the path to peace isn't through bellicosity or surrender, but through fighting the right war. I sit with that, though, and I, I am often confused. Because what does it mean to fight the right war? What does it mean to fight the right battles? And so often, what I encounter, sometimes in myself and with others is this tendency in the face of things that are difficult and scary to go one of two directions. We tend to go on one hand into sort of kind of a passive apathetic place where we go, there's nothing I can do. It's too overwhelming. I can't change the company. I can't change the uh, city. I can't change my life. So I'm just going to, I just, just kind of go with it. I don't really know what else to do. And then usually sometimes in the same person, you see, you can see a switch. You see a back and forth. Because on the other hand, you see this aggression at the wrong things. And there is this sense of, I need to go out. And I think what's scary is it feels like in the name of doing something right, I need to go out as the white horse, as a conqueror, and dominate. 
I know that there are at times, even in a church, I'll confess this, that I have thought about who I need to get rid of because they're in the way of what God wants to do. You ever felt that? In your company, in your places where you work, school? Gosh, if I could just get rid of that person. Now, no one was talking about killing anybody, we're just, but we're talking about getting them out. And yet you start to think, is that, is that the right um, answer? I think one of the, the things that has always inspired me as I've thought about dealing with difficulty in a way that feels like it, it goes in another direction is a story of my grandfather that I've shared here. He, that he has such an impact on my life in part because I saw him um, deal with difficulty but hang in there. Uh, a lot of his life uh, towards the end, probably the last 15 years, was, bit, was done taking care of my grandmother who had had a stroke. Um, she wasn't able to hear uh, or understand language, and she sunk more and more into, um, I think, depression in a lot of ways. She was very isolated. I don't know what was happening in her mind. But my, I saw my grandfather actually kind of be imprisoned. It's a lifetime of giving himself in ministry to, to the Lord. He had given everything. If, if this whole thing, this faith venture is about doing good and God just blesses you and opens up the doorways and everything you do is successful, it doesn't work. And yet what I saw in him as he uh, moved in this place where very few people came to visit him, the ver- some of the people that actually um, he invested in, he was stuck there with my, and he wasn't necessarily getting any sort of appreciation from my grandmother, yet he patiently hung in there and cared for her. I know it was hard, and yet what I saw him live out was a hope in Christ that says, today my life is hid with Christ. Today I have been crucified with Christ, and my life is with him. And so... For a man who could have been very angry at the end of his life, very angry at my grandmother, very angry even at God because he got a raw deal, I saw a man who by the end of his life grew in grace and generosity. There was an overwhelming sense that this was a man full of joy, but he had no reason for joy. And I think, how is it that we can move towards that versus so often what I see, which is that passive sense or the angry sense that I've been wrong? So I'm going to ask um, the band to come up. They've written a new song as they thought about this. Um, and I think it begins to lead us into what I think might be the way to move forward to think about what is it that we do. And it's wrapped up in a different question. of not what do I do, but how long? That all throughout Scripture, there is a cry of God's people that says, how long? And as you think about that, what is it that as you come in here, what are you asking God? How long do I have to deal with this thing that is either confusing, frightening in my face or not? What is it that I'm carrying for my friends that feel like they don't know how to make their way? They're wondering, how do I stand in the midst of this and what do I do? Because right now it seems overwhelming. What is it? If we begin to begin to say, God, we got to somehow put a name because we don't know what we're dealing with. We got to know what we're dealing with before we move forward. What is it that you bring in here? Um, I encourage you to think about that as we hear this song. So, Eugene Peterson. We talked about Eugene, and I hope you pick up uh, Old Mean Eugene's uh, book on Revelation if you haven't. Um, he makes this comment as he's um, going through, I think... Oh, nice. Nice job, bro. She's fast. Awesome. So Christians should be those who are the very persons who who should have no illusions about the depth of depravity in themselves and the world at large. They call it for what it is, name it, and deal with it. 
No other community has exposed rationalization, confessed complicity, knows what is wrong in the world, but at the same time is less cynical or despairing about doing something about it. Um, I want to bring up Scott in a moment, but I'm just curious um, if there's anything that's been, you guys would be willing to to, uh, throw out or name as we think about how the four horsemen operate in the world, in your world, or, or anything that comes to mind as we think, especially as we think about uh, this image of Pharaoh. We're talking about images of slavery. Are there anything that you see that is kind of contending with you, contending with uh, your friends that you'd call out? We would name. It's a big question. All right. Well, Scott, I want to ask you to come on up. One of the things that I think uh, I'm really thankful for, yeah, let's welcome up Scott Burnett, everybody. ladies and gentlemen. One of the things why we wanted to have Scott come in is because, uh, especially as Ron has talked about, how do we think about responding uh, to what we see in the world in a, in a very creative way? Oftentimes, art can actually help us with grapple with things that sometimes is hard to articulate. So we were thankful to have Scott come in. Um, and, and paint as we do this and think along with us. But uh, we've had a couple times to interact um, over the week, and I just wanted him to share a little bit uh, with us uh, what he was thinking as you're going through this. So to start, you, you heard us last week. What was kind of going through your mind as you were thinking about uh, uh, painting this piece? The first thing was tension. Hmm. And I guess both in the sense of, of it being kind of tense, um, the the anxiety that's implicit in some of the text, but more um, specifically, just the, I guess the positive and negative of, of what's happening there. And just the, it's like, this is a hopeful story, but it's really bizarre and troubling. And I mean, scary, of course, but even beyond that, it's just confusing and weird. Um, so just trying to um, express that tension um, so one of the ways was creating colors that are mixtures of colors that aren't supposed to go together. Mm-hmm. So there's a red that's a kind of a dark red that has green, a mixed green and actually bronze, metallic bronze inside of the red. Mm-hmm. So for me, part of what that does is it, it's actually painful to look at it mm-hmm. because I can feel the, the unresolved nature of the colors there. Um, so, and then also more, more overtly, uh, putting colors next to each other that are opposites like orange and blue and creating that, the buzz in your eye, you know, from those things. Um, the other thing just in approaching it was to determine to not try to directly represent anything. Why? Um, Partly because I don't like paintings that do that, <laughs> especially of Revelation, because it just, it just, to me, is ridiculous. There's good reason why. Yeah. Um, but the other part is that as soon as I shift to that part of my brain, mm. I have to not be in another part of me mm. that doesn't even feel like my brain, mm. a more um, soul kind of place. Mm. And so I try to um, approach the painting as much as possible from that where I'm not thinking about what's going on there. And, and for me, that's part of the point of doing something like this, is um, allowing 
allowing myself to, in prayer, um, try to process yeah. um, without grabbing it cognitively. Because mm. um, that's one of the ways I try to control things. Mm. You mentioned the, that there was kind of a, I don't know if you said surprising hope that came up. Or, it was, it was or counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, and it was just as I was working, because I knew the tension was there, because I'd read the text ahead of time. And we had talked a little bit. Yeah. So I came here knowing that. But as I worked on it and listened to you and Ron, I was aware of something else that was happening in me, even as I was listening to these words that were troubling in many ways. Mm. Um, there was this sense of hope that was kind of an overarching mm. sense. And, um, you know, honestly, part of that is probably because I was painting. Mm. Painting makes me feel good. Mm. But I think there was this other aspect that was, um, and we've talked somewhat about this, too, offline, um, this greater canopy of God's goodness and of an accomplished reality, hmm. um, eschatologically, this future accomplished resolution in Christ. Hmm. Um, and hearing these words hmm. under that covering. Hmm. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate um, about Scott is I think that when we start to actually get in and um, deal with deal with this, we have to wrestle. And I think I appreciate Scott coming and doing this and letting us watch him do it. And also just in sharing something that's unfinished in some ways, as Kyle said, you know, it's not finished. It's a kind of a work in progress. I think when we feel like we have to have sort of the answer immediately, we're never actually able to get to the answer. We have to struggle a little bit. The thing is, I think about how do we decide to go, what do we do? How do we stand? How do we be the people who don't get kind of washed over by life, but actually do something to it, actually make some sort of um, uh, impact or influence in a positive way? Our immediate answer is we want to know exactly what to do, and I wrestled with that, with a sense of, so okay, so what are we supposed to do? But I think that's the wrong place. I think it's the place that I understand we all want. We desperately want to know exactly what's going on or have somebody tell us exactly what's going on. And then we want to be able to do something about it because we interact with this chaos a lot of times. And it's hard to name it. It's hard to know what's going on in here. And we want someone to tell us what to do. Let's just get after it. We all want that because it's, we just want to start. We want to start moving. And yet I think we get into trouble when we don't slow down, I think on one hand we need to see clearly and be the kind of people who, as Eugene uh, Peterson would say, the very persons who, have, who would have no illusions about the depth of depravity, not just in, in the world at large, but in themselves. That if we can't look at what really is the problem, if we can't take the time to really think about what's the problem, how, our actions are going to go in all kinds of crazy directions. Are, are, they'll either just kind of, we'll just go, well, I, I can't do anything about it at all. Or perhaps we'll do like what we've often seen, which is, which gives rep, Revelation a bad name. The kinds of things you see in emails. I, I don't know if it's because we're doing this series, but I'm starting to get some crazy emails. I don't know who's put me on the list. If you're listening, don't put me on your list. Okay, but I'm starting to get some crazy emails that this last week, I found out that um, the, God said that there's Mexican mafia all over the world that's going to kill people. So basically, don't take cabs last Thursday, especially if they're driven by Mexicans, right? 
You're thinking, great, so that's what we need to do in light of everything that, that is challenging us. It just doesn't, like it doesn't even necessarily make sense, and yet there's this urgency to it. I think as people who are trying to figure out what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus in this world, I think what we have to do is we have to focus on the brackets. That Earl is famous for talking about um, that evil has been bracketed in many ways. That, that as we sit, we sit in a world that is really difficult in which we are not guaranteed as Christians to get out of any of it. Um, our friends are going to die. People we know who are really good are going to get a bad deal. Bad things will happen to them. We don't get out of that. And yet we can be people who live with hope because we don't believe that evil is just going to go on and on and on. We believe that it's bracketed. On one hand, we, we uh, read a couple of weeks ago in 4 and 5 that at the very center of the universe, that the one who is actually able to make sense of our lives is the Lamb. And that we are sealed by that Lamb. In, actually, in Revelation 7, um, one of the commentaries, Daryl Johnson, said this probably, for him, is one of the most hopeful chapters in all the Bible, Revelation 7. Because in the midst of the chaos, you actually see a worship service break out. That in the midst of everything that is going on, the four horsemen, to the question, who can stand, we begin to see the people who have been sealed. That we have been bought, not we have been set right with God, we have been bought by, the, by this Lamb who has entered into our brokenness and taken it all on Himself so that we would not be destroyed. That we are people, that we look, we go, what's, what's the, rea- the chaos of this is not the ultimate chaos. That on one hand, our life is hid with the Lamb. That we are His. That nothing can change that. That our hope is absolutely secure. That our past, we are free from our past. We are free from the things that we feel guilty for. We are free from the, all, all the anxiety. We can stand. That's what is really real. On, uh, we can be people. Let me, let me have that first. Yeah. In Revelation 7. Um, we read this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That we are people on one hand who declare that the Lamb has won and that our life is hid not in what we do or the stuff that we can get around us and, or, our, or, or how much is in our bank account or everything that we can manufacture around us, our life is secure in Christ. And we declare that. If we skip forward into 9, it, what's interesting, Ron picked up on this in um, Revelation 9. After we see all the trumpets, after we see all the ways in which creation is unraveling, All the ways in which we are held in bondage and slavery and we see people all around us who are stuck. What do we see? What's the response? It's this hardening of hearts that instead of saying salvation belongs to the Lamb, salvation belongs to the Creator God who actually entered into our mess and is seeking to redeem it and restore it. We read that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still thought that the work of their hands is what ultimately is going to hold them. And it continues on from that. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see 
or hear or walk. In other words, when you start, we start demons, you're starting to say, what is it that actually can make me secure? So let's make something out of my own hands that, which I can go, will give me some sort of security. Give me some sort of sense that I'm gonna, I'm gonna have success moving forward. Except that we're putting our hope not in something that is living, but in something that cannot see, cannot, it's just a piece of, it's a piece of rock, it's a piece of stone. We begin to look like what we make. They did not, re- nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, or their sexual immorality, or thefts. You see that there's this sense of just, it, of it getting worse and worse and worse. On the other hand, though, Towards the end of Revelation chapter 7, we see not only that we are, are we sealed, but there, we are people who have a great future. And that is what so often is forgotten in Revelation. We focus on all the bad when so much of this is about an unbelievably beautiful, life-filled, abundant future. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? Where did they come? He said, who are these people that actually can stand? I answered, sir, you know. They said, they're the ones who came out of the great tribulation. These are the people who stood underneath great pressure. That's what tribulation means. It just means pressure in many ways. All kinds of pressure. Um, As we go on down, we see that they're the ones uh, who will serve him day and night in his temple, who sits on the throne, who will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them into streams of living water, and God will wipe away uh, every tear from their eye. That we see that we are people that, despite what we're living in here, are secure fundamentally in our identity, and actually, God has a great future that we are marching towards. This does not define who we are. I think the number one thing that we do, the first thing that we do is we figure out what do we do and how do we stand is that we, think, is that we bring before um, God the chaos of our lives and we focus on the brackets. So often what happens is when we're faced with something, we focus on this. And what happens is we respond in, in ways that we can. We respond out of that. And so I'll just say for me. So the first thing is I want to think I want to go in. I want to dominate the situation. Then I'd begin to see the people who um, I just think if I could get rid of them, everything would be fine. The chaos would go away. And I'll justify that chaos in spiritual language all day long. Then we begin to operate with a sense of scarcity. Well, if I can, if I can perhaps protect or, or, or hoard around me the, the kinds of resources, maybe I'll be okay, especially against those who I feel threatened by. Or whatever it is that feels like it threatens me. Maybe I'll just kind of hoard stuff around me. That so often what we do is we respond out of that anxiety simply with what we think we can do instead of bringing it before God and putting it in brackets and saying, God, what is actually going on here? Give me eyes to see what the real problem is, not with the problem that I perceive. What's the real problem so that I can not, so I can make a bold move. We're not talking about people who aren't bold. We're talking about people who are wise who say, I know how to make the very best move that goes forward, one that is not about my ego, one that is not about my fear, but one that is a redemptive move forward. This is the first thing that we do. St. Ignatius, um, as he wrote a lot on this, on discernment, on how to make good decisions, and one of the things he says that it's totally applicable here is never make a decision out of desolation. 
Never make a decision out of desolation. Now, we can think about decisions, but so often we make decisions all the time out of a sense of fear, frustration. They're never good. They're always bad. They always lead us into a place where we harm others or harm ourselves or get ourselves into deeper trouble. The first place that we look is to stand firm, to hold evil before God, and to remember that I'm sealed I'm sealed. I am his. And then to hold on to, this is what I know. I don't know maybe what to do here. I don't know what's going on. I don't know exactly what the real problem is yet. But what I do know is this. And so I'm going to bank on this until I understand that. One of the things I want to invite us to do is to do that right now. And to do it um, in a way that gets us up and moving around. I encourage you to... Write down on that card if you can, or, or uh, if you can, if something's coming to mind, or just maybe a question. What is it that feels, what is this? What is it that feels like this? Articulate it somehow. Jot it down, jot it down on the card. Say, I'm bringing before this, and then I encourage you to, to bring it up, to drop it in here. Kyle's going to play, and the band's going to play. Drop it in here. You can also drop your offering in here as well. And then um, light a candle. We hear that the prayers of the saints are actually going into the throne room of God. And I think one of the things we wonder about, does God actually, is he hearing me when I'm crying out to him? Revelation tells us that actually the, the prayers of the saints are doing more than we know. Light a candle, this is a way to say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stake my hope, first of all, in you and what I do know. This is why I, if you have offering that you have to bring, I want to encourage you to bring it because one of the things we need to understand about offering is that it's a way for us to worship. That when we put our offering in the plate of rake, one of the things that we do is we're declaring freedom. We're declaring that what God has given me is not ultimately mine. And so when we give back, we give out of a sense of generosity because we recognize that God is abundantly generous and we say, my hope is not in what I have. So I'm able to give of myself, give of my time, give of my money, give of my resources, because God has given me abundantly. It's an act of declaring freedom. So if, if, uh, I encourage you to think about that if you have offering tonight, or just simply for you to write down what is it that, that is contending with you and with your friends. And light a candle, let that be your prayer. And ask God that He would reveal what it is that you want Him to, that, what it, what is it? Uh, what is the faithfulness that he's calling you to? So let's have the band come up and we pray. Lord, I pray that you reveal to us tonight. Give us the courage tonight to somehow articulate what it is that weighs on us. Lord, if we know what it is, I pray that we'd write it down. If we don't, I pray that we would just have a sense of bringing it before you. Lord, as we do... And we give it to you. We ask that you give us wisdom and discernment to know what faithfulness looks like. Because sometimes it's confusing. and Sometimes it's hard to know what to do. It's hard to know what faithfulness actually would be. Lord, we ask that you hear our prayer and begin to um, bring us to a place of peace where we respond not out of fear or anger or frustration, but we respond out of peace. We make decisions out of peace. And therefore, Lord, show us what it looks like to live boldly, going after the right things, standing for the right things. Pray this in your name. Amen.